It's the Fun to Know Podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, musician Brandy Butler. Who were you inspired by at that time, do you think? At the very beginning? Yeah. I would say Stevie Wonder. Um, no, I mean, I think Stevie Wonder is for sure probably my number one musical influence, especially at that time, and, and maybe also Smokey Robinson and Sam Cooke. I mean, he's just a masterful songwriter, a masterful, like, in the creation of, of tension within a song. I mean, I feel like his songs just, they have really good structure in every single one. They, they grow, and, and, and it, I never feel bored. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, Songs in the Key of Life, I feel like every song solidly is like, this is a amazing song ever since but I did meet someone recently who doesn't like Stevie Wonder really yeah, we're not friends not though. to be trusted no that's what I said I was like I'm sorry we can't be friends <laughs> greetings and welcome back to the fun to know podcast with Dan Buskirk here we interview artists writers and musicians about their lives and work we can be found along with past episodes at iTunes and Stitcher, as well as SoundCloud at soundcloud.com backslash fun to know, always with the numeral two. You can find photos and more about our guests on the Fun to Know podcast pages on Facebook and at Twitter at Fun to Know Podcast. And we'd be delighted if you take a minute to leave a review of the show on iTunes or any of those platforms or just send me a note with your thoughts on the show through Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Now on to today's show. I first met Brandy Butler when she worked with my wife at a Philadelphia charter school when Brandy was fresh out of college and teaching music to elementary school kids in the year 2000. I was aware that Brandy and her band Saigon Slim were performing around town in the same era when the Philly band The Roots were affiliated with the Black Lily Night at the Club The Five Spot, which became a showcase for talent like Jill Scott, Floetry, and Jaguar Wright. We lost touch for a bit when Brandy moved to Switzerland to become an au pair, but we're happy to hear later of the success she had touring Europe with assorted bands as a vocalist and making recordings with Chamber Soul and the Foxy and Airs, among others. In 2013, Brandy was a contestant on the Swiss edition of the TV show The Voice, making Brandy an instant celebrity within Switzerland's borders. All these experiences influenced Brandy's latest recording, Inventory of Goodbye, perhaps named after the Anne Sexton poem. And it's a gorgeously realized full-length, a song cycle on a transformative whirlwind romance with another artist, which came into shape while Brandy was recovering in the deserts of the American Southwest. We'll talk about all these things, as well as black theater, Stevie Wonder, Swiss village life, not being Aretha Franklin, Schlager music, the lore of television, finding your voice, love, sex, and Millie Jackson, as well as hear some cuts from Brandy's new album. You can find the album, Brandy Butler and the Broken Hearted, Inventory of Goodbye, on Amazon and other outlets. See a video of one of its songs, Spell, at YouTube. And discover all things Brandy Butler at brandybutlermusic.com. We'll hear a snippet of one of the album's tunes, Howling, as we head over to the kitchen table for our conversation. It's a okay. little. It's not a. a, a I I uh, go through and massage the sound. So okay, <laughs> massage the. Let me just turn my phone. 
so uh, usually I, I give you a, a big introduction, and uh, I'm here with Brandy Butler, uh, vocalist and a songwriter and performer, uh, stationed in, in Switzerland these days. She originally comes from uh, Reading, PA, and spent a lot of time in Philadelphia and learned her craft and has uh, now uh, had a lot of success in Switzerland. Uh, good, uh, how you doing, Brandy? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, you were here uh, just traveling uh, from Switzerland, but you're right on the cusp of uh, releasing a, a new recording, I believe, right? Yeah, in about the first week in February, I'll uh, be releasing the new album. Uh, do you have a title yet? The Inventory of Goodbye. Ah, uh-huh. and uh, this came uh, this came together through uh, uh, a lot of experiences you've gone through in the in the <laughs> last couple of years. I don't know if you're uh, given the background into the album yet to. Uh, to any press or anything, but do you want to talk about what inspired this uh, this record? Yeah, um, the album itself is a song cycle. It's a story that I experienced, and it's based on heartbreak. My first real feelings, my first time actually being dumped by someone <laughs> in 37 years of life, and this really intense phase that I went through I've experienced the contrasts of both deep sorrow and deep joy that went along with it. And uh, so it all uh, it all ends up in the record. Uh, you did some, some traveling around this time uh, as well. Yeah, and when the album first came into conception, I was in the I was doing a road trip around the West Coast, and that was when things started to materialize for me how I wanted to, how I wanted it to sound. Like I was really inspired by the desert and I, I spent a bunch of days in the Mojave and also the Grand Canyon and this kind of feeling of, of vastness. Like I really wanted to find a way to make this experience that I was having in the U.S. at this time, being in these places where space was so open and so limitless and you kept, I kept having this flip back and forth between I'm... Um, a really small nothing in this universe and like my deeper connection to myself and I wanted it to reflect that sound and that experience and so the desert and this trip was really an important part of that of me finding that space and that sound together I, I don't want to you know uh, I, I want to pry only as deep as you want to to pry but well, uh, I tell I have no secrets <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the relationship uh, and uh you know what this person was like, and uh, mm-hmm. you know sort of sure. what's I mean, the dynamics that that, that uh, this 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 album's built on. This person was a musician, and I met him uh, last year in January. Uh, we were supposed to actually play on a tour together, and we spent like three months over email getting to know each other until uh-huh. we met, and then things kind of rolled pretty quickly. What was his instrument? Just so we'll get a he's a, a drummer, a drummer. Okay, yeah, he's now, a drummer. He's a producer too. Just to get and, a sense of his temperament, we can take all of our, our yeah, he's stereotypes actually, about drummers. He's actually, I would say, like, he is a really super sensitive drummer. Like, he, this, this was also the way that he was built to me, is like, he's an incredibly quiet person who really um, has an ability to f- to understand space as a drummer, which I think is can often be the problem of drummers is they just try to fill the space, you know, like with as much sound as possible. And he was much more about figuring out what actually does the space need. Just a really special temperamented person. And uh, yeah, so we we dated for about, or we were together for about four months. And then we broke up. And in this time, I would say that 
he inspired an incredible amount of different things in me. Um, one was kind of a craziness, <laughs> like a, uh, I was not so at ease in the relationship. And so for the first time in my life, I I felt really on edge quite often. Like I wanted this so bad and I couldn't make it go the way I wanted it to go. So I wasn't at ease. That was the first thing. You're kind of a, a you know a very strong personality, so I would imagine you you might have been more dominant in, in past relationships, maybe. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, he was like when I come back to this thing of like he was a really quiet person. I'm not that I'm not a quiet person. I mean, I definitely I consider myself to be an, an extroverted introvert. But I mean, one part of it was also the distance. I mean, I was traveling back and forth to London and to meet him, and and I just was trying to make it feel really comfortable for me, and that. F- I don't know, somehow there wasn't an ease, a flow to it, and so I had trouble relaxing. But on the other side, something that he really afforded me was a lot of belief and confidence that I should f- I should follow through with what I think the right thing to do is. And when we were together, I was actually making an album already. I was making a completely different album. I was making a jazz album. And I wanted to make the whole idea, even before this album, was to make a piece of work that was extremely vulnerable and honest, like as honest as it could come. And uh, so I was in the middle of a jazz album at that point where I was trying to take like songs like Everything Happens to Me and Lush Life, like really difficult texts, and give them the emotional realness that I felt like they deserve and don't always get. And he was kind of from the beginning like, no, do your own thing, write your own music, you should believe in this. And and so that was also one of the gifts that he afforded me in this time was kind of the support that I needed even before the album came, but the support that I needed to believe that I could make this album. And you came up with a with a pretty incredible batch of songs. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, they've all been, you know, really beautifully, uh, it sounds like very expensively produced, actually. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a gorgeous sounding record. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, the first, I think when the sound really came together, I was... I came back from the U.S., and I have another project with a guitar player from Geneva. His name is Robin Girard, and he has this kind of semi-famous Cajun Zydeco band called Mama Rose, and and so he's known for being this kind of fiery, chaotic kind of Tasmanian devil musically, you know, a lot of energy, and, and uh, uh, yeah, I like to call him the perfect storm. And so I came back from, from this trip in the U.S., and he, we listened through my album, and he was like, I think you can do better as well. He also kind of was supporting me during this time. And I had two friends that were visiting from the U.S. at the time, um, George Burton, who's a piano player from New York, and Wayne Smith. They were playing with the Sun Ra Orchestra. And so they were in Geneva, and I was like, let's just go into a studio and let's just record and see what happens. I have no idea what we're going to do. And I was still kind of on this album of covers, emotional covers, and... The day that they came, I picked Roy Orbison's Crying, mm. and we just went into the studio, so it was just piano, drums, and this guitar player. And as soon as the track was finished, I the sound we made, the three of us, or the four of us, excuse me, uh, was so it that I knew it should go from here forward. Like, that's the new starting point, and everything else is from here forward. What's the, what's the instrumentation on, on the record? 
for the most part, I mean, we recorded live together, and for the most part, it's drums, bass, guitar, and then voice. And then in, in the After Effect, we did some backup vocals and some weird moog synths and things like this. <laughs> but for the most part, we tried to stay really as as close to possible to this kind of this team recording. And they're very. It's a very versatile group of musicians because it's yeah. it's. Uh, uh, it's it's a it's a album that really changes moods and uh, you know has a lot of sort of dynamics to it. It's it's uh, really uh, impressive as as an album. I, I like when I can uh, really listen to uh, to you know records that are that are really thought of as, as full records. It's 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 a, it's again a, an impressive piece of work. Thanks, <laughs> thanks. Where does the the start come from? I come from very, uh, you know, arts artistic parents. I do. My parents. My dad is a huge music lover, and uh, I think probably from the first moment I've been on this planet, 
he has invested a lot in uh, passing on what he feels music, like what is a value in music, not only his taste, but uh, just how important music is. And so like we had music lessons as kids. We sang a lot. My parents did theater. They ran a theater company. We did theater shows together. Just there was this really strong emphasis on on partaking in in art together. What sort of theater shows do you do together? Um, we did. I think the first one we did together as a family was Once on This Island, uh-huh. which is a musical about. It's actually a, an all black musical that's based on the story of The Little Mermaid, but set in uh, in Haiti. And so instead <laughs> of like m- people underwater and people on land, you have like the dark, poor black peasants from Haiti and then, like, the light-skinned mixed French people. Ah. And you had songs that you would, you know, solo songs that you would do with this and everything? No, actually, I was, in the, I was in the orchestra for this one. This was, like, the first production we did together. My dad was in the show. My mom was helping in some, I can't remember. What instrument were you playing? Flute. That's actually my, my first major instrument is flute. That's actually, I have a bachelor's degree in flute, jazz flute. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so that was like the first show we did together. And then we did a lot of, their specialty was minority theater. Uh-huh. So they did shows that were kind of aimed towards, because we lived in Reading, which was kind of a hotbed of 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 multicultural people in the late 80s and 90s. And so they did a lot of August Wilson pieces. Yeah, and yeah. they did like kind of multicultural pieces like fame for inner city kids and would this be the same like circuit that like tyler perry came out of of these sort of black-based uh you know musical theater productions or no i mean those august wilson those are all dramatic well, yeah plays, i mean yeah. they're major you know works but uh i know that there's also a you know another sort of theater circuit for for uh you know black plays that i used to see advertised on uhf when i was a kid yeah no, I mean, I think that came, like, more out of the religious circuit. Like, that was aimed, like, more towards the church-going black audience. Uh-huh. And this was just really for, like, people, I mean, I guess, based more for the people who lived in Berks County. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, did, were you, when did you start singing? I mean, we sang lots together as a family at home. As I mean, my dad was the person who taught me how to sing harmony. And Is he a musician himself? He was, like uh-huh. once my brother was born, he was a travel. He was in a band. They had a tour across the U.S. And what, what did he play? Guitar. Oh, okay. Yeah. He had a band called Chocolate Buttermilk. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's very seventies. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but when my brother was born, my older brother he gave it up. Uh-huh. And so. Well, it sounds like he still kept his, you know, hat in the ring though with the whole theater thing. And yeah, I mean, he definitely made a lot of music. He didn't play. He didn't play gigs, but, I mean, he did a lot of theater stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think the theater came ba- re- really because I went to audition for the show once on this island, and they just didn't have enough black men for it. <laughs> and so I was like, I encouraged him to come, and that is how that whole thing opened up, and he found, like, a second love there. Oh, that's great. But so we sang a lot at home. We sang as a family quite a lot, and and uh, I did the musicals. But I didn't really try to be a singer or, like, think of myself as a singer until... I went to university till I went to University of the Arts, uh-huh. and I was an instrumentalist at this point. And when I was in my sophomore year, my um, transcription and analysis teacher, who we had to always transcribe a solo by first singing it the first week, and then the second week coming with it and written. And after like six weeks, he was like, "You have a nice voice. You should consider being a singer." And it was the first time that that ever crossed my mind. <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, I'm kind of." 
kept it in the back. And then, yeah, after school, I started to sing more. And really, I think my career as a singer really took off when I moved to Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to jump back for a second. I, mm-hmm. I left out your, your mother as well, who took part in these uh, theater productions. What was your mother's role in these things? I think my mom was more the theater person. Like, my dad was really, really dominant about the musical taste, things that we got to listen to. <laughs> what, what, what were you listening to? Uh, black music. <laughs> I mean, he like uh, his favorites were like Smokey Robinson, anything out of Motown, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, any kind of smooth jazz black artists, like um, Al Jarreau. Um, and my mom was more actually attached to the musical thing. Mm-hmm. So like f- we listened to a lot of musicals. She took me to see a lot of musicals. I mean, I've seen pretty much every major, every major musical that was possible to see by the time I graduated high school. <laughs> that was more her world. And the Beatles. She liked the Beatles oh, a lot. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you say you say you didn't really come into your own uh, as a singer uh, until you got to Switzerland. But you were you were uh, you were took somewhat part in the uh, the Black Lily scene here in, in Philadelphia and in the, in the uh, was it the late nineties or, or you know, early alts, whatever you uh, call that era. <laughs> I mean, I did have I was part of a band in Philly that used to be called Saigon Slim, and like our I guess our biggest moment is that we opened for Terrence Trent Darby. That's pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we almost opened for him. At the last minute, he decided he didn't want us to open for him and kicked us and the other <laughs> opening act off the stage. But we played quite a lot in Philly at that time. And I came into this band actually as a flute player and then became the singer. Oh, wow. But I think I'd, I mean, that was also more the, for me, the more connected to the beginning of my time as a songwriter, like starting to learn how to craft songs that work in a band context. So they played your your songs in Saigon Slim? I mean, I just basically, one day I came with a song and I was like, I wrote the song. I think it's good. Can we play it? And they were like, yeah, let's play it. And that was the first time I sang one of my songs for an audience. And at that point, I was just the flute player who sang this one song. And then (laughs) eventually I became the singer. Do you remember the response you got singing your song for the first time? Yeah, they liked it. They liked it. It was was cute. That song (laughs) was cute. I just recently found like my first book of lyrics. And that was I looked at the words and I was like, okay, everything is really cute here. But I mean, I was also young too. I was really young at that time yeah. for me. Who were you inspired by at that time, do you think? At the very beginning, yeah, I would yeah. say Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. I think when I... He's not afraid of cute. Huh? He's not afraid of cute. He has really cute moments, though, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. He's, he's not afraid of cute and he definitely... He has no problem putting on the, the cute charm. <laughs> he has a baby crying or, yeah, or laughing right in one of his songs. Best yeah, ever, a baby crying. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think Stevie Wonder is for sure probably my number one musical influence, especially at that time, and, and maybe also Smokey Robinson and Sam Cooke. Yeah, yeah. I connected deeply to all those as a teenager growing up but just again recently in the last year i I pulled out like those that string of like five stevie wonder records which are all just more stunning than the next and i was doing a lot of driving in the car and really giving a good concentrated listen to each one like you know height of 20th century music perhaps i mean just you know uh, uh, jaw-dropping stuff yeah Yeah. Yeah. i mean he's just a masterful songwriter a masterful like in the creation of of tension within a song I mean, I feel like his songs just, they have really good structure in every single one. They they grow and, and, and it, I never feel bored. Yeah, yeah. You know, Incredible. like Songs in the Key of Life, I feel like every song solidly is like, this is a 
amazing song, every single one. Yeah, I mean, even though like you know, Superstition was you know such a huge hit of the era, like production wise, you don't listen to it and think, oh, this is an old production. Like it just always cuts through as a contemporary sound. You know that uh, that riff starting off. But I did meet someone recently who doesn't like Stevie Wonder. Really? Yeah, we're not friends. Not though. to be trusted. <laughs> no, that's what I said. I was like, I'm sorry, we can't be friends. <laughs> Out a drift on a lonely sea Couldn't find my way home There you were leaning out to me You pulled me into your arms You made me strong As Finish loving you. 
finished loving you. I wasn't finished loving you. So what year was it that you moved to Switzerland, and what brought you there? I moved in 2003, in the fall of 2003, and I was living in Philly, and I had just come out of like a rough patch. I had an operation on my voice, and that made me have to leave my teaching job. I was teaching at a school in West Philly, and then... I ended the relationship that I was in and I quit the band that I was in. <laughs> and so I thought if I'm ever going to leave Philadelphia, this is probably the time to do it. If I'm ever going to travel, this is probably the time to do it. And I just found a job online as, an, as a nanny, as an au pair, actually. And within six weeks, I packed up everything and left. Wow. You're still in your 20s, I guess. Uh, yeah, I was 23 point. at the time. Oh, wow. That's, mm-hmm. uh, I just turned 23. And uh, to go to a, language, uh, a, a country where you don't speak the language, I mean, that's... Somewhat bold. Yeah, I wanted to go to to London first, and then Paris. Those were my first two choices. And then this family <laughs> from like a little small village outside of Zurich wrote me, and they offered me some conditions that internally I was thinking of. Like they offered me what I thought was the most money. I just didn't know about the Swiss economy, how things were so expensive there. They offered me a job which I thought was close to the city. They said it's 20 minutes from the city. So in my mind, like Philadelphia terms, 20 minutes from the city is still city. But it's not like that in Switzerland. (laughs) We live like really in the middle of nowhere next to a farm. And then I thought, like, I'm just good at taking care of kids. I'm not good at cleaning. I'm, you know, I'm just good with the kids. And so I was like, this is what I'm good at. And this is what I do. And they agreed to that initially. (laughs) So I was like, perfect. I'll make a lot of money and I have... Uh, free time and they offered me some good initiative like incentives about the longer I stayed the more money I made and so I took this job and then I just ended up there wow what was your impression of the of the country when you in those first uh, weeks and months I think I hit a really strong cultural swing pendulum with within like three weeks because we lived in the village where I lived in was called it's called Bonstetten and at this time I mean, now it's completely different 13 years ago, but at this time it's what they called like as a sleeper, a sleeper village, which is people who work in Zurich and then they come home to sleep and because it's cheaper to live outside of the city or they don't want to live in the city. So it was literally a village of people who, for the most part, weren't really there. Yeah. And then at the same time, like at this time, uh, Switzerland is quite behind on their their feminine women's rights so at this time pretty much every mom in the village was a stay-at-home mom except for the family that I worked for she was a doctor who was doing her doctorate so I was a little bit shocked first because I we lived across the street from a farm and now that was I mean I grew up in Reading so I mean didn't know these I didn't really have so much experience with country life yeah and I was bothered <laughs> by the the intensity of how people are in your lives there. You know, like I remember I I broke the washing machine like three weeks after I got there by trying to put too much clothing in there. And then the neighbor across the way, she was like, oh, you clumsy American, you broke the washing machine. And I was like, ah, I've only been here three weeks and she, weeks and she already knows all my business. And this was hard. And I definitely was surprised because, of course, there was there were 
there was one other black person in the village. It was completely random. There was a guy, a black American, who had been with the army and had married a Swiss woman, and they lived two houses down. But other than that, nobody else. And the kids thought I was dirty in the beginning. They had never seen a black person before me. Oh, my gosh. So it was definitely cultural shock all the way around. Hey, was there any other racial diversity at all in the community? No. Was it all no. very pale yeah. Swiss? <laughs> but, I mean, it just... Uh, you know, just as an American coming to that community would it would be, you know, I think uh, culture shock enough. But the the whole, you know, sort of racial angle as well, like uh, that was a tough road to hoe. I mean, how long did you stick it out there? I worked for this family for 15 months and then I moved to the city. I yeah. left and I moved to the city and then things were different. Were you on good good terms with them uh, by the time you left? Or? Hmm. We're on good terms now. <laughs> I think I think that... Um, it's tough to live with anybody for 15 months. This I is think. true. It is tough to live with anybody. And I think that they wanted to really give me the space I needed and that they couldn't do it. Like in the end, it was hard for the mom. Like I'm super like they, most of the other people who had taken care of the kids were younger than me. You know, and I was like, one of the rules was I have to come home every night. And I was like, I'm 23. I've done my own since I'm 17. I know how to be at work on time, you know, and this was hard for them to to have this relationship where I really was like an independent adult and also kind of made this motherly role with their kids. I mean, I spent five days a week from seven o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night with their kids. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was really hard for them to, especially for the mom to accept. Did, but you, did you connect with the kids? Totally. Yeah. I mean, the oldest one, I think she was the one who I spoke English to them and she was the one who was already most impressioned into the Swiss society and so she, that one, we, we fought quite a bit in the beginning. <laughs> but the younger two, they were two and a half and, and six months. So that was totally easy. Yeah. yeah. But So you ended up uh, moving into to Zurich. Yeah. yeah. I had a boyfriend at the time who lived in Zurich, and I just moved in with him. I thought, like, I'll just, before I had left the family, I had gotten a job singing backup vocals on a tour. And so What was, sort of band? It was a it was a tour like a music tour with like uh, this company sponsors this tour and it was called the Christmas Sessions and there were like eight concerts all around Switzerland with a full band and like seven famous Swiss and some singers from Germany and one from Sweden and and it was a good job it was like my first job singing backup vocals and I thought oh wow it's already such a good job and I had to sing in Swiss German which was the first really? time that I had to do that or even really attempt to speak. So I thought, okay, if I can have this job already, I'm sure I can get more. So I just moved in with my boyfriend at the time, and then I waited, and three months passed, and I was kind of babysitting for people and just hanging out. And then I got a job singing in Swiss German for the most famous Swiss pop singer. <laughs> and uh, he who, is, also, who is that? His name is Florian Ost. Ah, what's he like? How old is he? What's his What's his What's his gig? Um. Swiss legend. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Switzerland is like Switzerland is a special place. I feel like because they have kind of two separate music scenes running. I don't know if you're familiar with like Schlager music. Yeah, it's like this German kind of pop music where it's really targeted towards a specific audience of. I would say like kind of xenophobic. Oh, people, really? I could know, certainly like, be schooled more on Schlager music. Schlager. Oh, it's, it's not. It's not my favorite. Is it like music. the country and western kind of a Switzerland yeah, I think it or has something? Like a, it it's has got a, a right wing slant to it a bit, or 
I mean, it's, there's no like hate speech or anything in it, but it definitely appeals to this kind of market of people, like people from the villages who uh, still have strong folk tradition. Um, it's nothing urban or modern, yeah. you know. And so this but singer, they kind of want to make Switzerland great again. <laughs> they definitely want to make like well-produced pop music, and this music was in Swiss German, which is also rare. I mean, this market for Swiss German is quite small because Swiss German music only goes to Swiss German. I mean, it's not so what translatable is, for what high is German. the Swiss? There's a it's a whole different dialect. To... Yeah, there's different dialects based on where you live. Huh. So like his, he lived in Bern. And so he had a different, I mean, everybody who lives in Switzerland, for the most part, you understand the German dialects, maybe in Wallis, which is, uh, they have like the German and French up there in the mountains. That one's a little difficult. But for the most part, everybody understands everyone else's dialect. But German people don't necessarily understand any Swiss dialect. Oh, interesting. So the music doesn't transfer over that way. So anyways, he uh, kind of made this success off of taking Swiss folk music, like the accordion, playing the, the hand accordion and kind of making it modern, like well-produced pop. And his most favorite song um, is called Sex, and the, the lyrics are like, I want sex from the morning till the evening, but in Swiss German. So I didn't know who this person was. I was like, he's like, we had a 30 concert tour, and I was like, sweet, I'm taking this job. And uh, yeah, I just learned all the music as best as I could from the sound of the language. Did you get to know him at all? Yeah, I mean, it was it wasn't like Switzerland is not France or Germany. It's not like they <laughs> the artists who are big there are not like crazy huge anywhere else. So it's yeah. still very personable and and small. How how did how had success treated him? I think he, he I mean, he had. I think he perhaps is even still the most pop most successful Swiss pop singer like in terms of still getting lots of radio play and oh interesting and uh, even though his music is not so celebrated anymore like Switzerland has kind of moved on to a more modern modern uh, genres of how they try to have Swiss the, the language integrated into pop music but I mean I want, he's definitely respected that's great yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You sang backing vocals with him, and uh, did things grow from there? Yeah, it was just one after the next. Like, I thought, okay, once this job came, and it was 30 concerts, and I thought, okay, if I can have that job, I'm sure I can have any job I want. <laughs> so... I just I'm taking over. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't even speak the language. I didn't, wasn't even speaking Swiss German at this point. So I could just reproduce the sound of the language phonetically. So I was like, I don't even speak this language. I can get these jobs. Then I must be on the right track. I'll stay here as long as the jobs that I'm getting are better than what I could get in the U.S. Yeah. And so just more jobs kept, com kept coming. Again, I got a job right after that singing with a Swiss German reggae singer who super, super popular reggae singer. And then other things came. I was in an African band, um, went on tour in Africa, 
So this project from Germany came around. Just more things just kept coming and coming and coming. And then um, in 2006, I got married to a Swiss guy, which kind of um, gave me roots yeah. in Switzerland for sure. And he was a musician as well. He is a musician as well. And we actually have a band together still. Ah. Yeah. Which band do you still have going with him? Chamber Soul. Chamber Soul. Yeah. Yeah. He made a beautiful recording uh, I heard a few years back with, with them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the tubist is on it. What's his name? Oh, yeah. Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson's on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that's a, tell me about that band. I mean, that, that that's a, was a, a really polished, beautiful, you know, uh, release. Um, Chamber Soul is a trio where I'm singing. Um, Roman Hoshik is the name of the guitar player, and Rene Mosley is the name the name of the trombone player. And I actually started years ago with a different trombone player, and the idea was we wanted to make music where just the two of us where it would function. And then we realized we needed another component, and that's where Roman came in. And this idea grew where we wanted to make modern chamber music, the same kind of concept where um, there are these small groups of people and it's enough, you know. And, And it wasn't like we wanted to make classical classically influenced pop music it was more the methodology of how you put together a group of instruments and make it sound as full as possible yeah and so, I, I think of the, the Nat King Cole trio was another drummerless group yeah and, exactly and they sort of stripped down jazz into these you know component parts that you know were, were filling filling halls yeah yeah exactly like you just have to have the right group of musicians who understand like I think all of us we have really flexible roles although I'm always singing and He's always playing trombone and the other one's always playing guitar. But sometimes like the guitar player is also the drummer or sometimes I'm also the drummer or sometimes the trombone player is the second singer. So there's just a lot of flexibility within within the group to create a really full sound. And now we've been around for, I don't know, 10 years almost. And I feel like we really, within the three of us, we have a really polished, really effortless way of making it feel like you don't need anything else. And so that album, this album we made together with Howard Johnson was our attempt to kind of pacify how many people told us, oh, it'd be nice with a drummer and it'd be nice with a bass player. And we thought, okay, we'll try once. We'll make this album where we just try with a bunch of different people and see what happens. So we tried with a tuba player and a drummer and a bassist and a percussionist and just a little bit of everything. And we tried also with a string quartet, which was perhaps the most the crowning moment of the project because that's the one that worked the best but in the end it just made us realize really what we do best is the three of us and actually it was confirmed like people in the end were really like this is the trio is what is is what's the gold that's great yeah are you what's uh, uh how are they active uh today are, are you still playing gigs as uh... yeah actually we, we released this album in 2011 called futurism and and we toured a lot on this album we're still kind of touring we took a break so I needed to stop all other projects that I had while I was writing this album because I felt like I'm I get really fragmented as a person and I needed to have some kind of some a better focus to make the album and uh yeah I mean we've played I don't know in five years 200 gigs on this album wow and now we're just starting slowly to write a new album
with me for early moon till night falls. We'll spend our time in the throes of good old fashioned company. Me for you and you for me. You're all that's on my mind. 'Cause when I'm with you, everything is going right. And when I'm with you, ain't nothing else on my mind. But being with you, I'ma give you all I can. 'Cause when I'm with you. I believe in love again. Blanket spread in the grass, summer breeze blowing past. Picnic baskets full of food, made by me, made by you. Glass of wine to top the edge, talking like we're long lost friends. You're that song I mind when I'm with you. Everything is going right. I, something else I know that uh, I sort of noticed, uh, I watched from long distances. You uh, uh, became a, a Swiss television star on uh, <laughs> was a Swiss as it's called. Is it called Swiss Has Talent? Is that the no? Name of the it's show? the it's, it was the Voice. It was the spinoff of the Voice. Oh, it was the, the Swiss edition of the yeah. The, so the in Switzerland, it's called the Voice. the Voice of Switzerland. Ah, so t- tell me how that came about. When Switzerland decided to do the Voice for the first time, they. There's no casting call, or like they do one casting call, but basically it's by invitation only. And so when they decided to do it, they courted me, and I refused completely initially. 
What was what were your refusals based on? My uncertainty of like whether or not this would be respectable to do. Mm-hmm. I had to kind of assess out, suss out what what is the value of doing these shows and how can I play it to my is it possible? Would it be worth it? And so they also come with like massive contracts, mm. and I was concerned that this contract would infringe upon what I had already built and would infringe upon what I was building. So I was really strong about my refusal from, from the beginning, but they were really, really hesitant. I really, really insistent on, on asking me, asking me, asking me. And they were like, just come in and sing and meet us. And so I came in and I sang and, um, the producer was really, really nice. And, and, uh, they offered me some some contract negotiations, and then I thought about it, and I talked with a a friend of mine who does promo, and and I made a strategy for myself how I would approach it, and then I agreed to do it, with the idea that I was using this as a as a marketing tool for myself. Sure. Yeah. So uh, how did that how did that play out on on uh, nationwide television? <laughs> It was actually much more emotional than I thought it would be. Like, I think on one point of it, I kept telling myself, this is the voice. It's not the, it's, it's a TV show, but it's not like American Idol. It's something different. But in the end, I saw that it was, and that was something that really was, I was kind of too late. I was too far in the process to separate myself from it. But I definitely think that I used it as well as I could. I mean, like I dictated, they try to, they have like people who help you write what your story is. And I dictated it totally what my story was. Like they wanted to build me as like the backup singer who sings for everybody famous, but hasn't made it yet. (laughs) And I got rid of this. And like in Switzerland, you know, body image is a big topic because, you know, everybody there is super skinny. And so I immediately talked about this to take away that from people. Like I was just, I thought a lot about how to to make the most out of the situation and I feel like I controlled it as well as I could to the point where when we got to the battle rounds so I made it on to pass the blind yeah. auditions and then we made it to the battle rounds and then they confronted me with something that I felt like crossed my beliefs fundamentally of what I do as a singer uh-huh. which is are you going to are you going to scream or not you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> and so I sang a ballad with the girl who actually won the show. We sang Adele, someone like you. And which is, you know, this incredibly emotional, well-written lyrically lyrical ballad that needs so little. It really, it needs so little. Everything is already there for you. And they were like, no, at the end, you know, you guys just, you're going to go for it. You're going to just let it out and it's higher and higher. And I was really adamant from the beginning. Just, no, like, I don't, I don't think the song needs it. And I'm not going to do it. And uh, it was hard for me. I felt like they really pushed me into this place where, like, it was clear that this thing was a value. And then when I lost the battle rounds, I was disappointed. Of course, I lost because I didn't do what they said. But it made me mad. I got really mad at myself because I had given these people power to dictate over whether or not I was good in a way, like, to the the mass audience. And that was really hurtful f- I, f- I felt like I hurt myself that didn't feel good and it took me a long time to be at ease or to be like at peace with that although I feel like the performance I gave was 
super, super solid and extremely emotional. I cried and uh, I don't feel like I could have done a better job than I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that there is a certain modern template of, of, of taking songs to that you know what do they call it melisma or whatever to yeah. that 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 thing I, I i don't know i i could definitely see why you wouldn't want to go there you know that's that's a, that's a real decision to sort of make in a, in a way but even more interesting though i think is the decision you sort of made earlier that like uh, you know, it was a very strong decision. It was, it was definitely, I think, the Aretha decision that that, uh, that uh, they had a choice to write the story of either that you were a backing singer who who couldn't push your way to the front, or you were, you know, somebody who uh, struggled with your weight and did uh, you struggle with your weight? Like you can't say I'm, you know, I'm second rate. You know, I'd much rather talk about you know the uh, superficial things. You know, yeah, no, I'm I. I wanted to take as much as I could away from the media to talk about stuff. And I could see it was it was an effective strategy. The girl who sang, who I sang the the battle against, she was pregnant during the <laughs> taping of the show. and But people didn't know. Oh, so okay. they just assumed that she was fat. And oh, it became okay. a, and they were really difficult. I thought that was working to the drama, like that she was. No, you know, they didn't tell. You were like, going to beat an expectant mother, and that was. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and they could have did that one. I'm sure. I'm sure if they had thought about that, they would have. <laughs> No, actually, it was more like we were fr- we were friends. So that was more their angle, like the two soul divas who are friends. And we used to sing backups together a long time ago, you know, like battling it out. But for me, in the end, when I look at this performance, um, we're just two people who do two different things doing our two different things. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like for me, as difficult as this experience was, as much as it hurt me and as much as I felt like I hurt myself after the show, um, what it gave me was definitely the understanding of what I do. And and I think when you, I am big, I'm five foot 11, I weigh 250 pounds and I'm black. So when people look at me in Europe, they're like, Aretha Franklin, you know? And <laughs> I don't sing anything like her, and this is not what I do. Yeah. yeah. But I, for a long time, I let people project that onto me because I was like, oh, jobs, you know, like, oh, we need a big black backup singer. Okay, you know. And she, it's hard to escape her shadow, I guess. In the, I mean, I think just people yeah. people felt like they look at this, this shell and they feel like, oh, she's somebody who can really just push one out, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I can, and I, but it's not what I want to do, you know, like for me. <clears throat> This experience made me connect with this idea that what I actually do is I'm a storyteller and that's what I enjoy to do. And I don't need in any way to make somebody listen to me. I can just, I don't need to yell at someone to listen to me. I can just say what I have to say. That's interesting enough. I believe this and people are going to listen. And uh, I think without this experience, I would never have made this album that I made now because what I do vocally on this album is like nothing I've done vocally before. I dare to not belt bar- uh, barely at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I really focus on the story, that the words are right, that the the sound of the songs sound like the moments to me and that when I tell people, when I sing these songs, that it's, I want them to feel like these moments are so, so honest that they're theirs. Yeah. And that show really connected me with 
with that part of myself because before I think if I hadn't done it, maybe I would have spent my whole life, you know, like letting other people push me like, ah, oh, sing another, belt out another soul cover, you know. I've really enjoyed the recordings that you've uh, that you've made up to this point. But the the the, the, the word that, that came to me listening to the new record was that she really sings with a new confidence here. That uh, you're you're seem you know more brandy than ever, sort of in, in a way on on the record. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the goals for me was to create moments as authentically as I could. But this also comes in conjunction with the fact that I feel the most me that I've ever felt. I feel the most connected with this person that I am and feel the most at peace with all the pieces of myself that I maybe struggled with in the past. And one one really strong component of this album is I think a lot of people who know me, they think like I'm the funny entertainer. And I am. I love to make jokes on stage. I mean, I've done lots of programs. I love to sing these old dirty songs from the 30s. And, you know, there's just... There is a really large component of me that loves to make people laugh. And I love to laugh. And this album is not that. This is another piece of me that is like more interested in in caring about the vulnerable side of human nature and creating a space for my own vulnerability and for people to connect to their own vulnerability through mine. And... This is something that I feel like is so rare because you have to you have to feel really good about who you are. You have to be really confident about who you are because you're letting the softest part of you out. And, you know, I mean, you're always going to get critics and that that's coming, you know, people who like it and who don't like it. And so you have to, yeah, you have to be strong in knowing that this piece that you're sharing with people, it's real and that that it doesn't matter in the end what what the outside is saying that it, because it's yours that it that it it's it's also still protected even though you're sharing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can sort of stand by the honesty of it. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, not only the honesty of it, but but also the oh, what's the right word? The experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's for me. It's really ex- it is it is really an experience. I mean, I I listened to the album three days ago and. After listening to the end, I thought these moments, these musical moments, they sound exactly how they felt for me. And every time that I've performed this, I've had four chances to try the show since since uh, the album has been finished yeah. because I wanted to see does it even work in a live context. I wasn't sure if it would. And every one of those moments has been full of emotion. I mean, I've cried at every single show, but not not out of sadness at all, just connection to this time and this moment and and this authenticness. And I could see, even after the shows, the way that people react to it or what, like, usually when I finish a show, what people say is, wow, you're such a great singer, or like, uh, oh, you're so charming on the stage. But every single one of these shows that I did, pretty much everyone said thank you. And that was it. And that was for me like the click that something else is happening. That's great.
So, yeah. so what are what are your plans uh, uh, in, in the nearest future uh, for this uh, project? Um, I'm trying to release the album. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, now the first stage comes, uh, and that's the release in Switzerland, uh-huh. and kind of generating some buzz around it. I mean, there is some buzz already, like Afropunk. I made a video, and Afropunk released it. And Beautiful video. Ex- Expensive-looking video as no. well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess expensive for american standards not so expensive for swiss standards yeah. but i mean it looks like it could play anywhere i mean you could you could play it on any national show anywhere i, I think thanks yeah. no i mean it, it was definitely i feel like love always looks more expensive <laughs> you know and it really came from like the woman who was the director of the project we really connected on on our belief of what the song was about and how it should look like and and so Everything felt, yeah, every, the way it looks is right. The the people who are in it, everything was right. Are, are you now recognized on the streets in Switzerland after uh, after being on the show? Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I wanted from that show was to have more recognition, to have more market value, and that all happened for sure. I mean, the show was four years ago, and people still know totally who I am, and they know this song that I sang. I mean, it was the most watched show moment of the show, and it had like front. It was on the front page of the newspaper. It was a big deal. This song and this battle, so it definitely gave me uh, a media credibility. I yeah, guess. yeah. You well, it, it sort of opens people to, to hearing your, the you know the story of this record or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm sure lots of people will want to talk about it again. I feel like it's a part that sometimes I feel like okay, finished, close to the side. But I'm sure with you know opening up, opening up this box of this album, it will come back to this. But I mean, it's. I guess it's also important too. I mean, this the story of finding out who you are through a show like this is is very much a value to me in this this new album and this new project. And yeah, now I'll release the album, and then the idea for me is to make as much media impression that I can, so I can move outwards of, from Switzerland. And for me, my next major focus is France. Oh wow! Yeah, I've I had a project in France last year. We played like ten concerts all over France, and I just really felt like in France, people they understood exactly what it is that I'm doing, and they valued it, and they got me as a person. That's great. So, I do want to jump one, back to one thing before mm-hmm. we before we end. One band we didn't mention at all, and, and I uh, really in, enjoyed the record. The the the, the fun- functionaires. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how that, how that band came together. Um, the Foncionaires uh, were some guys that lived in like Beale and Burn, and they were playing Northern Soul, like rare 60s soul covers, all songs I had never heard before. I had been in another soul cover band doing Aretha Franklin. And <laughs> now I feel bad for bringing up Aretha during this. No, I mean, it's just, I, I always feel like I'm, I just can't even begin to do what she does. Who can? Yeah, and that's why I feel like I don't need to do it because I cannot, I can't, in what, in the way that she does it, I feel like I could do one of her songs differently and offer it something, but like, I can't sing. It's a bit of a task. You know who you remind me of? The greatest singer who ever lived. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this band, the the Functionaires, were were they Swiss? Yeah, they were all Swiss, and they had been playing for a long time, playing these 60 soul, and in Europe, there's a huge scene for this music, like... Ska, rockabilly, surf, 60 soul, 
It seems like Amy Winehouse sort of yeah. rose somehow out of that whole uh, thing as well. I mean, I think there's definitely this part of me that loves to talk about sex and like loves to write funny kind of clever lyrics about these about sexual situations and that is how that album basically came to stand uh, because we were playing covers and then I yeah I just I wanted to have this outlet I thought it would be fun to write these songs because I yeah my 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 most ideal situation is is to write these songs about such dirty things and that people don't even realize it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you sang all those sort of old, you know, body songs from the 30s or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I also wrote a, I wrote a cabaret show um, that was called, in German, Miss Brandy presentiert über ehrliche Standards. And that means, that translates to Miss Brandy because everybody calls me their Brenda or Brandy. <laughs> and uh, that I presented overly honest standards and I wrote like all these jazz songs like about penis length and this, this is a sad passion of mine to write <laughs> to write songs like this or to sing them because I feel like they're just, nobody does it. Nobody does it and I love to do it. So Millie, that, Millie Jackson years yeah, ago where I, sang the dirty songs. Yeah, I always say Millie Jackson is my spirit, my spirit animal. And <laughs> this is funny. My dad actually used to have this album, and I still always loved the one where she's sitting on the toilet. <laughs> I and just it, ran across it in a store a couple of days ago. Yeah, that's really stayed in my mind as a kid. That particular album. But yeah, so the funk singers came through that. Like I wrote a bunch of songs. I mean, not they weren't all dirty, but like that's how it started. And then. I had the idea to make an album and it was the first, that was like my first production where I did most of the work. Like we recorded, someone produced it with me, but like I sat and did the mixing with someone. I did the mastering with someone. I organized the, like went through the process of making an album. And, uh, it's important to know that, you know, you gotta, you gotta take the camera apart if you're going to be a film director. Or whatever, yeah. You know? I mean, it definitely helped for this process. I felt like a thing, a lot of things went a lot smoother because I already, I already understood how it went. But um, yeah, this band had actually, it's funny, it had like a good amount of success in Europe because of the scene. Like we played lots of concerts and a couple of our songs got placed in movies. And But we actually broke up. Ah, <laughs> a fun project though. And uh, yeah. you know, another way to exercise another part of your personality. Yeah. I have a new project that's uh, with the same guitar player from... Brandy Butler and the Broken Hearted is the name of the band that plays this new album. And uh, the guitar player from this band, we have another project together that's called Duck, Duck, Grey Duck. That's the name of their band. And they play kind of like trashy, 60s, soul meets police, like Tina Turner meets the police. Uh-huh. And uh, I also wrote a whole bunch of dirty lyric songs <laughs> for this one uh, under because the, the band's name is Duck, Duck, Grey Duck. So my name in the band is Dirty Birdie. And... <laughs> That'll come out, I think, probably at the end of next year. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to, to touch on we didn't talk about? Or... No. I feel like... Um... What's it like being back in Philadelphia after all this time? Uh, I cried <laughs> the first <laughs> the first uh, five minutes. What do you miss about Philadelphia? I think Philadelphia has like it has such a special feeling of of again I come back to this word of ease. I feel like Philadelphia has something that that it feels like ease here. 
You know, like nobody's in your face. It's not aggressive. It's still city. It's not aggressive like New York. You know, it's it's a really livable space. I don't know. I just feel like I can move here and I can breathe at the same time. Yeah. And and when I got into the city, I just, I mean, I come every year, but I just had a really strong wash of like the feeling of how much I love being here and like the life I could have had if I stayed. But I mean, I'm not regretting anything. I have a good life in Switzerland too, but it just felt in that moment really present to sit with that feeling again. Well, it's great to have you back. Thanks. It's nice to be here. <laughs> and, and thanks so much for uh, for talking to me today. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> That's it for today's Fun to Know podcast. Thanks to Brandy Butler for taking time out on her trip back home to talk to us. You can find her inventory of goodbye by Brandy Butler and the Brokenhearted at Amazon and find out still more at brandybutlermusic.com. As for me, you can check out my writing on film at Fawker.com. That's P-H-A-W-K-E-R.com. Look for the documentary film class. I'll be teaching at Fleischer Art Memorial this summer. And you can hear me spinning jazz at WPRB Princeton Mondays at 11 a.m. EST to 2 p.m., both over the air and on WPRB.com. And I hope you'll return back for more Fun to Know. free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.